Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly, Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and today I have the privilege to continue our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. Today we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 10 through chapter 2 and verse 5. Let's begin. Well, good morning. It's good to gather with sisters and brothers on a day like this and to sing the praises of our God. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our text this morning begins at verse 10. Before we go any further, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the privilege that you have given to us. The privilege of being able to gather, to um, to look at, into your word, to have you teach us, Father. Lord, I, I offer myself now as a channel for you to speak. And Lord, I ask that you would let your voice be heard clearly. Let only your word be spoken. And Father, draw us all closer to you. That we might rejoice the more and be able to... Um, to bring honor and praise to the name of Jesus. And we thank you for all of this in his precious name. Amen. In 2014, author Eric Metaxas wrote in the Wall Street Journal. And he commented, he said, In 1966, Time magazine ran a cover story asking, Is God dead? Many have accepted the cultural narrative that he's obsolete, at least. That as science progresses, there is less need for a God to explain the universe. Yet it turns out that rumors of God's death were premature. Um, more amazing Sorry. Is that going to work? More, uh, more amazing is that the relatively recent case for his existence comes from a surprising source science itself now here's the story the same year that time Uh, featured that now famous headline. Incidentally, the same year that I got my engineering degree, uh, astronomer Carl Sagan announced that there were two important criteria for a planet to support life. The right kind of star and a planet the right distance from that star. And given the roughly octillion 
uh, that's one followed by 27 zeros. Uh, roughly one octillion uh, planets that were expected to be in the universe. There should have been roughly a septillion, that's one by followed by 24 zeros, planets capable of supporting life. And with such spectacular odds, I mean, one in a thousand, that's not bad. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, was sure to turn up something soon. So scientists listened with a vast radio telescope network for signals that resembled coded intelligence and were not merely random. But as years passed, the silence from the rest of the universe was deafening. Eventually, the U.S. Congress um, defunded SETI, but the search continues with private funds. And as of 2014, and I think 2021 has the same result, researchers have discovered precisely bubkis, that is, zero followed by nothing. What happened? Well, as our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear that there were far more factors necessary for life than Sagan had supposed. His two parameters grew to 10, and then to 20, and then 50, and so the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped to perhaps a few thousand planets, and kept plummeting. Even SETI proponents acknowledged the problem. Peter Schenkel wrote in a 2006 piece for Skeptical Inquirer magazine, In light of new findings and insights, it seems appropriate to put excessive euphoria to rest. We should quietly admit that the early estimates may no longer be tenable. As factors continued to be discovered, the number of possible planets hit zero and kept going. In other words, the odds turned, out, turned against any planet in the universe supporting life, including this one. Probability said that even we should not be here. So much for human wisdom. Now, last week, Phil introduced us to the church at Corinth. That church had been recently planted by Paul during his ministry there, perhaps, give or take, a year, 50 A.D. And since then, the Corinthians had written to Paul asking for guidance. But in the spring of 54, Paul was busy in Ephesus and couldn't personally travel to Corinth, so he wrote this letter. In it, Paul responded not only to concerns raised by the Corinthians in their letter, but also to verbal reports. Now, it's important to remember something of the context. Corinth was a busy seaport, a center of commerce. It had been initially settled by retired Roman soldiers, followed by Greeks and then those from various other Mediterranean countries. And each people group 
brought their own culture, their own language, their own ways of doing things, and their own gods. So Corinth was a city of bustling commerce, with, both in merchandise and in slaves, and with a multitude of religions and philosophies. Now, fortunately, everyone spoke either Latin or Greek, so, and most spoke both, so communications were relatively easy. And we pick it up then at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each of you says, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Ephesus wasn't really all that far from Corinth. And there was a fair bit of trade between the two cities. Now, we don't know who Chloe was. But it appears that some folk, uh, Chloe's people, had traveled from Corinth and had made their way to Ephesus. Or perhaps some had traveled from Ephesus to Corinth and then back again. And they passed on a report of what they had observed in Corinth. Either way, Paul heard the news, and that news was distressing. Now, anyone attempting to make a diagnosis has to know the standard against which to measure the current situation. And that's true for a doctor as it is for a mechanic. About 20 years before the current situation at Corinth, Jesus had prayed with his first disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. And he had prayed in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for unity, not uniformity, but unity, committed unity, that the whole world may know and believe that Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem us. Now, the sad history of the church is that divisions are seldom far from the surface. Just a few months after the resurrection, 
Divisions arose between Hebrew and Greek-speaking Christians over the daily distribution of food among the new Christians. Even in Philippi, apparently there were divisions between Christians and Christian leaders. Today, look at the number of different Christian groups here in this city who will not talk to or work with other Christian groups. Small wonder that the world has a hard time believing us when we speak of the love and the grace of our God. But there was rampant disunity in the church at Corinth. The Corinthian church was divided over their allegiance to their favorite preachers. Some preferred Peter, others Paul, others Apollos. And then some were taunting the rest by claiming to be the only true Christians because they followed Christ. The question apparently being debated was who was responsible for the radical change in their identity. Um, these whom Paul freely refers to as brothers. And he addressed them in the first part of the letter as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So who did it? To whom do I owe my allegiance? After identifying the divisions that existed, Paul then used a series of rhetorical questions, all of which demand a negative response, to begin to help the church at Corinth to process the foolishness of their reasoning. He asked, is Christ divided? In other words, did Jesus come to establish opposing camps? And the answer is, of course not. He asked, was Paul crucified for you? And the point of the question here is to get to the heart of the transformation that took place in their lives. And the answer to this question is also an emphatic no. In um, verse 2, of this chapter, Paul was clear to say that those whose lives had been transformed were sanctified in Christ Jesus. The cleansing from sin and the setting apart for God's purposes had been accomplished through, had not been accomplished through anything that Paul had done. It was accomplished through Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And then Paul asked, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And again, the answer is almost as emphatic, no. So through these questions, Paul begins to bring to light the foolishness of the division that existed in that church. Jesus had not come to establish opposing camps. He's the one who works sanctification in the lives of those who believe in him. And those who believe and who have been baptized are supposed to have declared their allegiance to Jesus alone. But in a setting like Corinth, where wisdom was so highly valued, the Christians began to try to incorporate earthly wisdom into the message of the gospel. 
And Paul was quick to point out that their redemption, their forgiveness of their sinfulness and their being set apart for God had not come from such wisdom. Pick it up at verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The new Christian identity and life transformation simply does not happen as a result of thinking things out. It's the result of the gospel. Had sanctification come through the words of eloquent wisdom and learning, then the work of Jesus on the cross was to no point. There was no point in it. Paul goes on to make his case for this. He told the church at Corinth to look around at those who made up the church. Where were individuals who really excelled in philosophical wisdom? Where were the scribes, those who were considered the wisest of the Jews with respect to the Old Testament? Where were the wise debaters? There weren't many, if any at all, of these in the church at Corinth. And why was that? Paul says that it's because the world did not know God through its wisdom. In other words, worldly wisdom is not the method or the means by which God chooses to make himself or his salvation known. Nor is it the means by which an individual may come into a relationship with God. In fact, great wisdom and the pride that typically follows could be a very significant hindrance for believing the claims of the gospel 
and having a relationship with God. But what was it about the gospel that made it so hard to believe, so hard to trust? Gospel means good news, and that's exactly what it is, but there are parts of the gospel message that some people find hard to understand, hard to accept. A key point. The Bible reveals that all humanity is guilty of sin, that our sin has devastating consequences. A very real and serious consequence of our sin is both present and eternal separation from God. And on our death, having God's wrath being poured out on us in a real and literal place of great torment called hell. And what is worse, we're helpless. We're hopeless. We can't do anything about it. Because there isn't any redo button. You can't hit the undo. It just isn't there. Once we sin, we can't go back and have a do-over or change our action or our thought. We can't undo our sin. Nor is there some kind of magic eraser for our sin that we can just rub on our sin and make it go away. Our sin stains our lives, makes us unholy and unrighteous and unfit for the presence of God. And that leaves us both helpless and hopeless because no amount of good deeds or religious activity can erase or cover over the sin that stains us. Our only hope is for God to do something to rescue us from our sin and its consequences. And that's exactly what God did for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Now, Paul goes on to say that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles because it's a huge contradiction in terms. Now, just try to put yourself in the, in the shoes of the Jews. For them, the Greek word Christ is a translation of the Hebrew Messiah. And when they heard Christ or Messiah, it communicated ideas like power and might and splendor and victory. They believed that God's Messiah was going to come to earth in great power and might. And he was going to fight on behalf of God's people, that is, the Jews, and free them from all their enemies. They believed that he would usher in a time of ultimate victory and permanent prominence. The word crucified, on the other hand, communicated ideas that were very different. Roman crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was so nasty, so degrading, that the word was never spoken in polite company. Although everyone knew what it was because crucifixions were public events. It communicated 
ideas of weakness, humiliation, total defeat, and depravity. And now these were words that could never be connected with God's Christ. They could not go together because in their minds, a crucified Christ was an impossibility. So for Paul to say, we preach Christ crucified, that was absolute nonsense. Now, on the other hand, there were the Gentiles, the Greeks. The message of salvation and new life came through a crucified Christ was just as foolish. Again, try to put your put yourself in their shoes. The gods of Greek mythology powerfully exercised dominion over the earth, over the whole of creation for that matter. And most of the Corinthians were constantly trying to appease those gods, trying to do everything they could to avoid provoking them to anger. And as they heard Paul proclaiming the gospel, they heard a message of a God who got himself murdered by mortals who were his enemies. That didn't make any sense. And even if it were true, this God's murder at the hands of mere humans would have meant that he was incapable of bringing salvation. And he was certainly not a God worthy of worship or allegiance. Salvation and rescue simply didn't come through the death of a God. It made no sense. So regardless of the background, whether Jew or Greek, to preach Christ crucified was a stumbling block and foolishness. And yet Paul declared that's exactly what God did. Because it is God who called us to salvation. When he opens our eyes to the truth of what was accomplished in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, then Jesus alone becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation and sanctification. Now, Paul knew that de-emphasizing wisdom in a culture that placed such a high value on it was probably going to backfire. So he went on to challenge those who made up the church of Corinth to give some consideration to themselves. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. While the culture tended to look for individuals who possessed wisdom and power and nobility and then to applaud them for their accomplishments, Paul said that there were not many like that who were part of the church of Corinth. So their salvation and sanctification had to be dependent on something else. But what? Paul says it was dependent upon God. Now, think of that. But God. Do a quick study on those two words in the Bible. But God. That reveals, that quickly reveals a God who does what no one 
expected him to do. It wasn't just surprising things. Astounding things on behalf of those he delights to call his own. Effectively, Paul is saying, look, God didn't look at you guys and say, wow, here's a few all-stars. Based on their abilities and giftedness, I bet they'll be able to earn my forgiveness and salvation and then set themselves apart for my purposes. No. God saw you and me in our foolishness. He saw us in our weakness. He saw us in our lowliness, in our shame. He saw us in our despicable situation, soiled and sinful. And then he did the unthinkable. He chose us. This is more than good news. This is the greatest news that could ever be proclaimed. God looked at you and me and saw sinner. He looked at our state and he didn't see anything good or impressive. He looked at us and saw us with our, shall we say, less than impressive traits. He looked at us and saw that we were helpless and hopeless to change our state. And in his love for us, in his mercy for us, in his grace, he did something about it. He chose us. Listen carefully. Verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, remember the divisions. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because we have nothing to boast about apart from the Lord Jesus. We have nothing to be proud about except our God. In his immeasurable, who in his immeasurable love, he chose to redeem us. Then Paul went on. uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on wisdom. In the, on the, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul now completes his argument, outlining the foolishness of the gospel by implicating his own contribution as well. 
a crucified Messiah did not make sense, according to human wisdom. The choice of the ordinary Corinthians as recipients of the gospel did not make sense if one was choosing an elite force to spread this message. Paul recognized and reminded the church that they certainly didn't accept the message of the gospel because of his preaching. Rather, he recalls his preaching was not eloquent. It wasn't abnormally wise in human terms. So they did not respond because of the amazing delivery of the message. Nor did they respond because Paul was so dynamic. He came in fear and trembling. What was so compelling about this foolish message of a crucified Messiah? It was compelling because it came through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that their faith did not rest on human wisdom, which is what they were currently being focused on, but rather on God's power. Our culture, 21st century Timmons, has boundaries that keep it from receiving the gospel as well. Two of the biggest boundaries we see are the same two that have existed for all time. Self-righteousness and pride. And we see the same righteousness and pride today that has always existed in mankind. People never want to admit that they're sinful or that they need help. Just about anyone you ask will tell you that they're a good person. But who are we comparing ourselves to when we say that? The problem is that God doesn't accept good people. He only accepts perfect people. Because he is perfect. And since none of those exist, there are no perfect people. He also accepts forgiven people. But forgiveness can only be found in recognizing our sin, confessing it to God, turning away from it through submission to the Lord Jesus. The answer to the divisions that plagued the Corinthian church, that have plagued the church through the ages, is not better preachers, or more programs, or uniformity in the ways we do things, or even in the things we do. The only answer that God has given us is Jesus and our willing surrender to him. And that becomes our situation this morning. Yes, it is still this morning. Have we, do we, continually surrender to him? He is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Let's boast in the Lord Jesus everywhere we go.
Let's just close in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that for many here and for many listening, you have revealed your Son, that your light has broken through like the darkness of a prison cell just being flooded with light. And we have seen Jesus. Lord, if there's amongst us some today that have never trusted in the finished work of your Son, the Lord Jesus, that they do not realize he is alive and that he continues to live and desires to live in our hearts. We pray that this might be a happy morning when they turn and say, your word says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I'm calling right now, Lord. And so we pray that we may rejoice together and that we who know you will be unashamed of being your ambassadors, your representatives. And this week, we will have ears to hear those who are looking for the light in the darkness. We thank you again. Bless us as we separate to the end that Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, will receive all the glory. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen. Amen.